Dear Colgate, I love that you love that I love being at home. You even let me whiten my teeth from home. Because you know how I feel about getting up from my cloud couch. The Colgate Optic White LED Kit gives professional level results in just 10 minutes a day for 10 days when used as directed. And that's why, Colgate, I want you to meet my parents. Because ever since meeting you, I've been living life to the brightest. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 59 of Literary Disco. Pancake story. <laughs> we'll begin today's episode with a... Yeah. In this episode, we talk about our favorite breakfast. Right. <laughs> No, today we will begin with a classics quarter with two Ks, a segment in which Todd will write a fake passage to a classic work of literature and try and fool me and Julia into believing it's real. And then we will dive into the short stories of Brees DJ Pancake. I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me are essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel and novelist and critic Todd Goldberg. Good evening. Hi, everybody good very late night for me it's 11 o'clock yes it's so if, if julia sounds weird it's because she has pounded coffee all day so that she could do this yep. show on eastern standard time what? or is it daylight savings daylight savings is not a time zone that's a twice a year experience <laughs> well it's eastern standard and then if it's daylight savings makes no sense it's really a ridiculous tradition that we should just drop because it's just confusing. Shouldn't it always be daylight savings time? <sighs> what do you mean? Well, I mean, isn't it nicer for it to be light outside, um, you know, longer? You know, I think it's... Uh... This hurts my brain to think through, but... Yeah, <laughs> we are stumped. For the first time, we're totally stumped. <laughs> okay, as far as I understand it, daylight savings was started so people would... So shops would still be open during daylight hours, so people would shop longer. No, because I thought otherwise. It had to do with the no, war. it's for farmers. It was about the war. It's farmers. And wow. farmers. So we all have completely different ideas. Um, I I heard that it was I I heard that it was about farmers originally, but then I read something somewhere that said that it was because it was trying to increase commerce in in America. Like, um, but it's all a right, American thing. Out. It's it's not like it has no basis in actually adjusting for seasons or science. It's just. The modern era of daylight savings was first proposed in 1895 by George Vernon Hudson, and it was first implemented, uh uh-oh, by Germany and (gasps) Austria-Hungary, starting on the 30th of April, 1916. Many countries, I know, many (laughs) countries have used it various times since, most particularly since the energy crisis of the 1970s. Hmm. Mm. So it doesn't have anything to do with war. Or farmers. Huh. Or, or farmers. Shopping. Wow. Huh. huh. Does Germany still use daylight looking, savings time? Let's see here. Um, oh, so it does have something to do with war. So in 1916, Germany and its allies were the first to use daylight savings time 
as a way to conserve coal during wartime. So it is a Nazi. They weren't Nazis in 1916. Whatever they were in 1916, it was their weird little no. thing. Hmm. They were a new country. It became. They were a pretty new country. They were figuring out their shit. Nazi. You know. Russia and a few other countries waited until the next year, and the United States adopted it in 1918. Huh. Wow. I thought we won that war. But <laughs> yeah. Huh. I guess not. Or we just absorbed the ideas. Sounds like... At any rate, it's, it's quite late where Julia is, but it's still light where Ryder and I happen to be. <laughs> Putting me somewhere in the Austro-Hungarian... <laughs> hey, let me ask you guys an important question before we get on to the important literary game playing. Are you guys watching the World Cup? Uh, a little bit. It's too sad. I really hate sports where everyone is sad 50% of the time. It's awful. <laughs> well, somebody's well, got to lose. What do you mean? Yeah, Anytime you're playing. That's all sports. The well, I guess not... level of disappointment is really brutal. Uh, yes, Todd, I've been watching. I haven't watched the last... <laughs> last two days so i've missed i missed the germany blowout and the uh, so i've missed a couple things but i mean i watched all the usa games that was the, amazing. the usa games were amazing and tim howard was amazing but yes. i was watching it today which today was the netherlands versus uh, argentina which ended in a shootout um and here's here's my question this is it might be related to the daylight savings times thing um when is the Netherlands the Netherlands, and when is the Netherlands Denmark? Um, never. Denmark? It's never Denmark. Oh, n- Holland. No, Holland. I'm sorry. Holland. <laughs> You're an idiot. <laughs> when is Sweden Switzerland? At what point do we say Iceland is Greenland? Never. Okay, but it has two names. Even... I know what you're saying. But it's also, think about it this way. It's comparable to Great Britain, United Kingdom, England, right? Right. They're all different categories. There are technical definitions. So I think, and you know, of course, the Netherlands, they have their own name for their country in their own Dutch language. Right. I'm not sure what that is. That's probably the most accurate. But for English, Mm. I don't know why we call it the Netherlands and and Holland. I'm not sure either. I don't understand that. Julia, do you have any ideas? No, I can't. When is Netherlands, Denmark? (laughs) But let's let's break down England right now, because I feel like we can do that. It was a a typo. When is it? Now, now when is is the the United Kingdom refers to everything that's under the crown, which is all including Canada, Wales, including um, Australia. Like, that's all part of the United Kingdom, I think? No, Australia isn't part of the United Kingdom. They don't believe in the royal family. They don't care about that. They used to no, be. They were a penal no, colony of the United Kingdom. But not anymore. Okay, th- but hold on. But there are countries that are Commonwealth. Canada is a Commonwealth. Right, but United Australia Kingdom. is not a Commonwealth. Australia is not. Okay. No. Good to know. So <laughs> are they not part of the United Kingdom then? No. No, okay. Australia is its own thing. Well, just then like, Great Britain just includes like the African Scotland countries that, that... and Ireland, debatable, North-South right. Ireland. Great Britain... That's what that... But then what is England referred to? Just the country... Just the country of England, I believe. Just the country of England. I think Great Britain and England are interchangeable, and I believe Holland and the Netherlands are also interchangeable. See, I I would assume that Scotland would be included in Great Britain. 
Well, we should ask our friend Sheena. I think she'd have some opinions on that matter. Yeah. Huh. I can't believe we don't know this. I'm and, I'm a little embarrassed. I know it's it's a little embarrassing, but at but any they rate, spell things with extra U's over there. Yeah. It's weird. Weird. Well, and then there's a, the there's the whole legalized marijuana in uh, in Amsterdam. So there's all that that I think affects people's ability to to say things correctly. Um, but at any rate, okay, guys, yes. I have some information. Okay, uh, the Netherlands used to include Belgium, but uh, when Belgium became independent, uh, the Netherlands just continued to use the name. Oh, today the Kingdom of the Netherlands encompasses the Netherlands. Um, one constituent company country of the kingdom, Aruba, and oh. a couple other uh, islands here. Huh. Yeah. Oh, so like when that guy, Vandersloot, murdered that woman, that girl on Aruba, he was he escaped back to Holland? Holland. <laughs> okay. Huh. And then okay. he killed that other woman somewhere else and got convicted of that. Hmm. All right. None of this has anything to do with literature. Well, I just wanted to talk about how awesome the World Cup is from a narrative standpoint, because I have been watching it, and never is there more drama than in a 0-0 game. You know, it's just really fraught. And so I wanted to recommend a great book about soccer called Kick and Run by Jonathan Wilson um, that I actually reviewed for the LA Review of Books a couple months ago. Um, and it's about really being a young Jewish kid in England and becoming and playing soccer and how the that soccer was the one democratic unifying thing in the place where he lived that it was the one thing that pulled people of all races colors and creeds together was their time on the pitch that sounds um, amazing yeah it's a, it's a really interesting book it follows him from his childhood all the way up until present day where he's a journalist and a novelist as well and he actually wrote about the World Cup for the New Yorker um, when it was in Chicago, which I believe was 1996 or 2002, something like that. Um, but if you're interested in um, in soccer and the World Cup specifically, I recommend the book Kick and Run by Jonathan Wilson. A good Ooh. book. So, Sounds good. It is good. So we're bringing back an old game. We haven't played this one in quite some time. And people, they love the Classics Corner. Julia, can you explain what Classics Corner is? Okay. Well, we won't refer to it like this anymore, but its full name is Classics Corner with two Ks. Uh, so, yeah, Todd just sent us an email spelled K-L-A-S-S, etc. With two Ks in the title. It's really exciting. It's cute. You know, if you lived in a small town, that's how they would spell it. Um, so how it works is um, Todd has chosen a passage... One, right? No, there, there's one fake passage and two real passages. One fake and two real. Okay, there are two real passages and one fake passage that Todd has written from a famous piece of literature. And he's going to read them out loud, and we also have them in front of our eyes. And then Ryder and I have to guess which one Todd made up. All right. You guys okay. ready? Yeah. Do so we get this, to know what the book is? Yes. This is from The Death of Ivan Illich, so it's actually a short story. The Death of Ivan Illich by uh, Tolstoy. Did right. we do a Russian last time? I feel like... Who did Dostoevsky? Uh, I might have done Dostoevsky. Yeah, you love the Russians. Was like a, that was like a year and a when half you, ago. When you do your classics, you go right for <laughs> Russians. Interesting. I do. I do like and the yet Russian And you hate Russians. True. And you hate Russia. Uh, so I hate Russia because <laughs> they child chased of the my 80s. family out <laughs> in the early 1900s. <laughs> and then they killed all the Jews in that city where they lived. Okay. 
So, I got my issues with Russia. Don't get me started on Germany, either. Okay, so, this is The Death of Ivan Illich. It's a wonderful short story by Tolstoy. Here is example number one. Ivan Illich found time in the provinces a constant tide of drudgery, like a disease of the kidneys where there is no warning but death. It was to be 1881, his son long past, his daughter struck with the silence of education and then life and then marriage of her own. His tasks were few now. It was the worry, the uncommon refusal of contempt to leave him at will. He could see the markings Peter the footman had left in his wake. That was all, that was all there ever might be. All right, that's number one. Sounds number two. Fake. Number two. Neither as a boy nor as a man was he a toady, but from early youth was by nature attracted to people of high station as a fly is drawn to the light, assimilating their ways and views of life and establishing friendly relations with them. All the enthusiasms of childhood and youth passed without leaving much trace on him. He succumbed to sensuality, to vanity, and latterly among the highest classes to liberalism, but always within limits, which his instinct unfailingly indicated to him as correct. That's number two. And number three. Always the same. Now a spark of hope flashed up, then a sea of despair rages, and always pain. Always pain, always despair, and always the same. When alone, he had a dreadful and distressing desire to call someone, but he knew beforehand that with others present, it would be still worse. Another dose of morphine to lose consciousness. I will tell him, the doctor, that he must think of something else. It's impossible, impossible to go on like this. Mm. Wow. Mm. Yes. Okay. I certainly think the second one is really Tolstoy. I do too. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There's no doubt in my mind about that. So. Yeah. It being one of the most famous passages Tolstoy has ever written, <laughs> I would suggest that it is that is correct. Is it really? I don't actually recognize it for don't, that reason. Yes. There's don't just the, help us. Oh, I'm yeah. sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, you're right. You just made your job fuck. harder. Just Let me add another one. <laughs> here are here are some of the clues. You know, assimilating. That's a you know that's a very Tolstoyan concept and word to use. And then highest classes to liberalism. All yep. of that is that woven just in the with word the emotional. Too is so not. Tall. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've um, latterly, okay. latterly among the highest classes to liberalism. Ugh. Let's get down to brass tacks here. Uh, yeah. I think the first one's total bullshit. <laughs> you don't believe in Tolstoy? Um, you believe you believe he's a bullshit writer? Uh, don't, don't try help. to trick don't me. Talk. I'm not talking. Yeah, just don't talk. Just give us two minutes apiece. Right. Um, the third one. The third one sounds the most. Um, well, it's it's more repetitive. Always the same. Always pain, always despair. So, which makes me think it could be Todd vamping a little. <laughs> like, uh, we need to fill. I need to fill a little bit more space because there's a lot of. There's more repetition in that one. It's impossible, comma impossible to go on like this. But I've never read the story, or if I did, it's been so long that I don't remember what it's about. So that none of this is familiar enough. Like, is that first one? What it would mean? Does it refer to the character? with his full name is that like a yeah i think a pattern uh, that within? doesn't throw me off 
I think, so I picked up on the same repetitiveness as you did, Ryder, and also, I just don't think that Todd would say things like, a sea of despair rages, because that sounds pretty corny and cliche, and I think he wouldn't try to do that. I think he's a lot more likely to try to say something like, like a disease of the kidneys. That sounds like Todd to me. <laughs> you are good. You are good. I'm going to vote number one based on what Julia said. Number one is clearly Todd. You're right. You're right. He would catch himself in cliche on number three. But number one, he, he would. He was. He's trying to sound. Yeah. No, that's good. And he also threw in the date and the full name. So. <laughs> Like to reemphasize that it's the 19th century. Yeah. No. Yeah. 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 Number one. His totally Todd. were few now. Yeah. I don't know. I don't and know. Peter that's, the Footman. Like, why are we learning about a footman? Uh, <laughs> just because Todd wanted to throw in the word footman. Yeah. No. Well, you guys are correct. Yeah. Number one. Ah! <laughs> the, the real clue should have been that I misspelled Ivan Illich's last name in the thing I sent you. <laughs> It's uh, it's supposed to be I L L Y I C H. Well, I I noticed that, but sometimes there's different spellings right. of Russian surnames. So, yeah. uh, well, you know, you, you are correct. The like a disease of the kidneys. That was a line that I was like, oh, I wanted to be similar <laughs> to the fly going to the light, but different. <laughs> um, and then there's a. You know, he's dying throughout the, the story. If you've never read it, it's a wonderful, awful short story. Um, and there's a there is a bit where he's complaining about the kidneys. And then I was like, but that is so true about the kidneys. You don't know until it, it takes you. Peter the Footman is a character uh, in the story. Um, and there is a line in the story where it says he dies in the year 1880, if memory serves me correct. And so there's a bit in there where it says it was 1880. His... You know, so I was like, "Oh, I will bump it up a year." It's now eighteen eighty one, motherfuckers. Okay, um, can I issue a listener challenge? Yes, because I think like a disease of the kidneys is just so captivating. I would like our listeners to tweet us the end of that sentence. The end, complete that metaphor. <laughs> like a disease of the kidneys. Dot dot dot. <laughs> and we will read the best ones next time. Yeah, I I love that idea. <laughs> like a disease of the kidneys, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> Although, I, I will say, like a disease of the kidneys where there is no warning but death. Not a bad line. Not a bad line. Not a bad line. I, I, I don't have any use for it, but not a bad line. Well, that was uh, that was Classes Corner with two Ks. And once again, I, um, I present the clues to Ryder and Julia. And once again, week after week. They get me right away. At least it wasn't fucking freedom, and you guys figured it out. In, in well, I feel time. like actually, uh, Classics no. Corner. We've all been stumped except for my first one. I think ever you guys got nailed me on the first one, but other than that, we've stumped everybody on the Classics Corner, right? Yeah, I think yeah. so. It's oh, one of and our I should scans. I should give a shout out to um, we. So someone was listening to the show. Her name is Rebecca H, and on Twitter, her name is of Books and Bikes. And um, she guessed the uh, correct answers last week. 
before Ryder was able to get them both out. She was apparently very upset that you were not getting the answers out correctly, quickly enough. She guessed them as soon as she heard them. And so we're sending Rebecca a prize. So if you um, guess ahead of Ryder or Julia, which will be difficult this time. How are we going to judge Because that, Julia though? gets it within one sentence. Anybody could just say. Our, uh, we trust our listeners. Yeah, 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 you're right. We'll trust our listeners trust this round. Them. Yeah, I'll. We'll send one of you a prize if uh, if you guess what it is right away. Um, I don't know what that prize will be. It's usually a book, or or some other ephemera that I find in my house, or, or a signed picture of Julia. So that was Classics Corner. Join us next time, and we'll stump each other with some other dead Russian. <laughs> Sounds dirty. Stump each other with a dead Russian. Sounds like the name All of a great right. drink. I love a stump with a dead Russian. (laughs) Welcome back, everybody, from an arbitrary break where we didn't actually take a break, but where Julia went and got her power cord. Um, This week... This episode, we are talking about a writer that we mentioned a couple episodes ago named Brees DJ Pancake. Um, And he was more generally known as Brees Pancake. And his middle name was not DJ, it was Dexter. Um, But he is a writer that I really feel like a lot of people don't know about anymore. Um, And in fact, when I brought him up on the episode, whenever it was some time ago, neither neither of you guys had heard of him, right? Right. No. Um, so I read it him during the episode. I went ahead and ordered the book. Yeah. So I had started reading it before we decided to do it as an episode. So he um, he's a writer that I first read in as an undergraduate. Um, he killed himself in 1979. Um, and a few of his short stories had appeared previous to his death in places like the Atlantic. And then after his death, they appeared more often in the Atlantic. And then a collection of his 12 stories the stories of Brees dj pancake which we're reading was published in 1983 and was nominated for the pulitzer prize um he only published six stories in his lifetime so he he was not widely known um as a living writer i think for a time in the late 1980s mid to late 1980s he was fairly well known and i think for a little while in the 1990s he was somewhat well known and i think he's fallen off the radar for a lot of young readers and young writers, most likely, um, because you know what I had realized is that I'd never even had anyone read one of his stories in all the time that I've been teaching, um, which I thought was surprising because I would have, um, I should have given a bunch of people this book. Um, he was born in West Virginia um, and lived there. He writes about West Virginia. I would say his work is probably most reminiscent for. For readers now, maybe of of Daniel Woodrell um, in the in the regional dialects that he writes in, um, he's been compared to Hemingway. Um, I I think he has one of the most incredible and indelible voices ever. That no one else sounds quite like Brees Pancake. Um, so there's 12 stories. We'll talk about a few of them as we go along. But I'm interested first to hear what uh, what you guys thought reading him for the first time. Um, I was. I was I loved it. I mean, I was really intrigued. I mean, I we've joked before about how like if it's a rural sort of 
coming of age thing, I'm on board. So the first couple stories, it was like guy in his tractor. And, you know, I definitely love that vibe. I love the Faulkner. I, I love, um, um, well, I guess Willa Cather's not really a Southern writer, but I love people that write about, um, you know, rural communities and, um, and struggling with poverty in those communities. And, um, it's great. I mean, I, it was funny because there's other authors I've read that have clearly been influenced by him. Um, right. That, um, I didn't, you know, I never made, but I guess I expected, um, I expected it to be easier, like quicker to read. I was surprised at how um, even tempered it was and how um, clear each one of his sentences are. You can't skip. You can't skim this no. book. And, yeah. you know, that's that's such a sign to me of a certain style of writing. And, I, you know, once people say something like, oh, it reminds me of Hemingway, I think, oh, well, I can sort of skim through it or whatever. But it actually... It, it, it's it's really dense he's in it's an mm-hmm. incredibly dense he's an incredibly dense writer and so the prose itself is really compact so it's not like as opposed to like Faulkner who would write these you know one sentence long paragraphs and you sort of get lost in the stream of consciousness there's nothing like that it's very tight and dense and um just wonderful it's it's a unique voice and it makes me really sad that we don't get more of it yeah, I, I was really struck by also, and I don't know if this is really true, because, I mean, I write about killing people all the time, and I'm not going to go out and kill my kill anybody or kill myself, but there are some pretty obvious signs that this was a depressed person from what he was writing about. And in the afterwards and forwards to this book, and there's a great deal of scholarship on Brees Pancake that's out there, and a great deal of letters back and forth, people were surprised that he killed himself, and we'll talk about how he ended up killing himself in a bit but everyone was seemingly surprised that he had suicidal tendencies and and ended up shooting himself um but it's it's pretty apparent in the in in what he was writing about that he was obsessed with those things um which makes it even sadder to read Mm -hmm. um well i too loved it and you know i I like the rural vibe too but i think i'm more wary of it than you are writer of like Mm -hmm oh god how cliche is this gonna be or am i gonna appreciate this you know cerebrally but not be affected by it because there's just so much out there like it but what one of the things that i absolutely loved about this is just the really amazing unique choice of character um that so many of these narrators or characters were like the one about the guy who operated the snowplow i just you know, I just couldn't stop thinking about it. You know, yeah. what is the life of a snowplower? And it that is outside to me. That is a step beyond. You know, the tractor story mm-hmm. um, that just thinks about you know the seasons and you know the emotions of these particular kind of jobs and experiences in a way that I've never experienced before. You know, and there's stories about really young prostitute or people living in men's homes. Well, that's the same story, but. Um, I just was so drawn into the different perspectives on this community. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why I really, really enjoyed it. And there, there's a real question, I think, in the work about his portrayal of women. So I'm sort of interested in, in your feelings about that, Julia, because invariably, so even just in the first story, um, trilob- Trilobites, is that how you pronounce it? Trilobites? Trilobites. Trilobites. There, there's a rape that happens in this story. Um, so 
I'm curious about how you feel just in general about his portrayal of women. I, my view is that I, I don't think he's he's not marginalizing women. I believe these are how the women were treated and how people acted towards them in this world. And, and that's what he wanted to show. But did you did you experience anything in, in the sense of most women in this are, are basic sex objects or whores or someone that you're going to get drunk and fight for? What, what was that like for you? For me, it felt, if anything, it felt, the, the, the most, most of the short comments that I felt from this book, and especially that one, which did stand out to me, um, just come from being 26 years old and, like, mm-hmm. just discovering your art. Like, I really, that's what's sad about this book is, like, I feel like the breadth of his talent to write was outpacing his breadth of experience. Mm-hmm. and and or the breadth of the subject matter that he chose to write about so these stories actually work really well as a collection because they are all focused on sort of men in west virginia or the south in sort of lower you know low working class drifters men you know coal miners truck drivers that kind of position in the south like that's his his subject matter for these stories i feel like had he lived Mm-hmm. A couple more years, he would have produced a novel about that would have had equally developed female characters. Or just, I mean, the fact that you were that he was twenty six. I mean, you think about where yeah. you were at when you were twenty six. To have the talent and, and, that he did as, as in terms of the vocabulary and ability to capture moments and to to um, to give life to characters that he probably didn't know all that well. He knew the world, but he might not. I mean, I don't know how many actual plow drivers he knew. But the fact that he was able to create, like you were saying, an, an incredible five or six page story that just draws mm-hmm. you into this guy's world completely and believably, to me indicates that had he decided to expand that to include the people he didn't immediately know as well, like women or you know whatever he hadn't experienced yet, um, it's a loss. Uh, mm-hmm. But I, I definitely, by the end of the book, I was like, oh, do I want to read another story about the farming life being lost and the right. new generation of people... Um, you know, but and when you think about it, like Faulkner was obsessed with the generation, the post Civil War generation, so he just kept writing about that. But he found a way to, you know, throughout his career to make it more interesting and include issues of race and sometimes, you know, uh, women or you know whatever. It, it, it kept expanding. I feel like had had Pancake kept writing, it would have expanded in the same way because it clearly has a, a sensitivity to the humans he's writing about. It's just that he was still figuring out what to write about well there's there's this little bit in trilobites right before the sex scene actually um which i'll read which actually kind of highlights what you're talking about about his skill outpacing his own experience um he says it the, uh the main character's name is collie and he's uh with a girl named Ginny. and Ginny says to him what is it collie why can't we have any fun and he says when i was a young punk i tried to run away from home I was walking through this meadow on the other side of the hill, and this shadow passed over me. I honest to God thought it was a pterodactyl. It was a damned airplane. I was so damn mad I came home. I peel chips of pain from the window frame, wait for her to talk. She leans against me, and I kiss her real deep. Her waist bunches in my hands. The skin of her neck is almost too white in the faded evening. I know she doesn't understand. In that paragraph, uh, it's also basically explaining where he was as a writer, you know? Mm He's, he's 26, talking about being a young... In this character, talking about being a young punk. And, you know, when you're 26, you think 
you think you're older than God. You think you know everything and you're still, you know, really just a kid. Um, but I love that paragraph because right after that, he basically rapes this girl. Um, and he doesn't recognize that he's raping her. He's surprised when at the end of it, she drives away and leaves him there. Um, and so it's, it's, it's a moment of like that where there's such a mixture of innocence and being older than yourself as a writer and then also the surprising violence that you know i just that that paragraph alone just makes me think man this is a guy who if he had lived could have could be doing anything right now he could be the the finest novelist in the world he's writing in a way that is thoughtful and detailed Mm -hmm. enough that seems like he is aware of the stereotypes he is creating and reflecting upon i mean we can't pretend we don't live in a world in which women weren't mistreated in many ways Mm -hmm. and the fact that there's an accurate reflection of that world does not inherently make the author himself sexist (laughs) no and you know he apparently had lived hard he was probably older than his 26 years and if anything what the foreword and the afterward say is that you know he'd seen some shit and he'd gone through some things um which you know I wonder if I had read these stories without rereading the without reading the forward and the afterward again. Because I hadn't re- read these stories in years. If I'd have the same opinion, because once you sort of hear about the person and these people's memories of him, it changes the way you read the stories. Well, like I said, I mean, is... I think they actually function really well as a collection. So, like, mm-hmm. if you handed oh, yeah. me this these these stories and and um and I didn't know anything about the author and and you said this is a, a you know a, a collection of short stories. I would probably really appreciate the thematic resonance and the repet- the repetitions. Like, you know, there is a, an ongoing theme of, or ongoing um, use of fossils and like natural, the you know things within the landscape that tell a story. Like, there's Indian burial grounds. There's dinosaurs referenced. Like you talked about, there's actual fossils. There's talks of there's talk about coal and where coal comes from. Then there's also there's lots of repetition of the use of animals. And like, you know, there's bobcats and foxes and sort of comparing mm-hmm. animals attacking each other to humans, uh, viciousness towards each other. And and that sort of like, you know, fighting for your place in the food chain versus fighting for your place in the social structure. Um, and there's lots of things mm-hmm. that come back and, you know, and then like and, and then just the class issue, like just the fact that these are all people of a certain class and they're all men. Um, you know, there's a lot that 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 I I would have thought was more like, oh, wow, this is a really well-crafted use of these thematics to create one collection. But because I know he died at 26, I'm tempted to say instead that actually this was just where he was at. And this is this is all he could write about at this point because that's all he had explored. So thematically, you know, he was mm. still sort of... And, and and so, in a way, it's like, it makes for a great collection, but because he's only 26, I find myself sort of judging the the, the experience level and saying, oh, I wish there was more, I wish there, you know, it could have expanded from beyond this world, um, which is, in a way, kind of unfair, because the truth is, it completely works as a cohesive collection. Mm-hmm. It's not uplifting. It's not fun. No. It's certainly, like kind of a drag (laughs) you meet these people at all that you know i mean look let's let's i mean pretty much every story follows a similar arc which is somebody who's really unhappy a man who's really unhappy with their place in life 
Um, they're not fitting into the old social order, which is usually represented by farming or their father, a father figure of some sort who has a no more like natural connection with the landscape. So they're not fitting into that, but they're also having a hard time with machines a lot. Like they're not, you know, they're, they're it's this car culture and they're not really fitting into that in some way. They're kind of miserable. They do something violent or, you know, awful in order to, to survive, in order to function. Women leave them. I mean, they're like country songs. Right. I mean, that's what we're listening to is like, you know, oh, I have to shoot my dog and drive off in my old beat up truck. Like, that really is what most of these are about. It's like a, that's sort it's, of how they it's end. It's like a it's drive not. by truckers album, you know, like the, the yeah. dirty South. Yeah, it's a dirty, dirty Southern book. And that's that's so cool in some ways, but it's also it's it isn't really lifting like. I really, I, I got frustrated um, because I, and this is just more of a thing I think I'm going through. I'm a little over the short story. I'm really liking novels. And so I was frustrated by the short story factor. I would get into a character and into a world and these are, these are not easy reads. So I would get, it would take a while, you know, take a couple pages for me to be like, oh, the names, the, you know, for just the, the cosmology of names to sort of fall into place and be like, oh, these are who these people are to each other. Now I get this guy and this girl and I see where they're going and then the story would just end and I'd be like oh I have to reset to read another story to like you know put all this work into another character that's going to just depress me and leave <laughs> so <laughs> I think like I'm a little over short I've stories right now <laughs> ever in my entire life well um, you know I'm... so I feel like that's a little unfair but I, I you know if I it... yeah <laughs> I'm no. over short stories so the, fuck this guy yeah no but you know what I'm yeah. saying like if these are not, if they if they they aren't satisfying I mean in a great way they aren't satisfying they are supposed to leave you with this lingering sense of ooh, you know this mm -hmm. heavy angst about the world and the south and a mood yeah they're really and and so that 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 did get tiring to read um in one sitting multiple stories would get very exhausting it's hard to see with a a writer of this talent who's writing on such themes if these would have been the themes of their lives of his life would he have always written about these rural environments or could he have taken those amazing, beautiful skills and description and characters and created collections about wholly other things? I mean, you know, I, <laughs> I want to see Brie's Pancake fan fiction. It's just so wonderful and haunting and beautiful, but well, that's what we get when we only have one collection or one book from a writer it's i mean it'll bother me forever you know what if the, these stories are sort of endemic of a of a time in short fiction also when when people didn't write well people wrote them but no one published them funny short stories um you know the, it's a i mean it's it's a it's a combination of the sort of the gothic southern style and then the dirty realists that were out at that time but you know what I kept thinking about while reading it was two different modern short story collections. And it has to do with the portrayal of humans versus animals in rural settings. And that is um, our friend Megan Mayhew Bergman's Birds of a Lesser Paradise. And also a great book I read not too long ago by a short story writer named David James Poissant called The Heaven of Animals, um, which uh, I reviewed somewhere. The LA Review of Books. Um, where... It's that strange battle that I think we are having now. And we talked about this um, generally when we talked about those essays, When Animals Attack, um, of, our, of our place in the modern world with the animal kingdom and how the, the advancement of modernity has pushed the animal kingdom to its furthest reaches. And eventually they're going to want some of that fucking land back and they're going to come. 
um, and they do come. So I'm I'm fascinated by by that intersections happening here because these are all very rural short stories, except for A Room Forever, which takes place in a big city, um, but where the people in that story are are animals. Um, I, I'm sort of interested in in that obsession about where we fit in the animal kingdom and and why it tends to creep up in, in different times. Have you guys noticed that in, in other things that you've read? Moby Dick. Now's the time. Read it. You know, it is. It's all about how we treat animals and how we exploit the animal kingdom and whether we should respect this mysterious, crazy whale animal. I mean, that to me is a huge part of that book is the industrialization of an animal. It's it's such a crazy and, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, I mean, explicitly, it's it's ex- an examination of what this animal means. And you learn so much about the sperm whale, even though I obviously didn't remember it when we brought it up last time. Uh, but you end up, you know, you should read Moby Dick, man. If you're into this, <laughs> now's the time, Todd. Uh, no, I, I haven't. Am. I haven't. The, super, the, the use of I'm books, uh, the use of animals in this book, sort of bothered me. It felt a little, a little heavy-handed and on the nose in some ways. And and um, I don't know. Every, every time uh, you know, it was like a bobcat was watching him. I was like, eh, really? Like, are we? You know, I just, I just, I wasn't feeling it that much. Um, but I do, you know squirrel hunting like that just is crazy to me when you're hunting squirrels to eat them i mean that was crazy in that movie uh winter's bone when they did that too it's just like oh right like wow they were we're down to eating squirrels so that's sick you know and then we describe like you know field dressing a squirrel in this book is pretty intense well that's um, your problem so that was grease pancakes we're getting whipped with a right. black snake that i don't i don't ever <laughs> want to be whipped by a snake that sounds that sounds bad well, I just read an awesome collection of short stories by George Saunders, 10th of December, um, just the other day. So I am not over it. And, God, his stories were so uh, hilarious and beautiful, and they have just such a strong sense of voice. And, yeah, if anyone's looking for a short story collection, even if you've never read short stories at all before or think you don't like them or haven't read them since college or something, um, definitely check out 10th of December. Mm-hmm. And I am assigning that to you, Ryder. Because you need it. <laughs> I love that scene in The Great Gatsby where he goes in his room and he starts throwing dogs. All these beautiful dogs. All these beautiful dogs. <laughs> go read it. I love that scene. Hang up and <laughs> go read Death of December. I kept thinking about how much this book felt like the 60s, 50s and 60s. And and how different the South is now. Like, I'm very curious about I, I You know, I haven't read any... Uh, Woodrell's book so I don't you know I don't I haven't read much contemporary southern literature like most of the stuff I've read well you saw you saw Winter's Bone and that's a Daniel Woodrell book yeah I guess I guess I was fascinated by how unique these little these towns were and I was thinking like nowadays they would just be McDonald's and and like Foster's Freeze or whatever like whereas back then it would be like the local diner where people would work and the boarding house you know where there's the woman that everyone knows is a whore like i just wonder if that still exists or if in these small towns are just sort of strip malls of big box stores now mm-hmm. and how different that cold it's a different type of poverty and it's a different type of impoverishment but it's you know and it's also probably like even though you know these people are starving and shooting squirrels like i wonder like what like how are people surviving now in like really poor right. dirty south situations to probably just buying mcdonald's like like what how you know i i don't know i was just curious about like where where the southern dirty southern culture is at and who the writer is for that well, right i now. think even if you listen 
to like someone like Jason Isbell, for instance, you know, who who writes his songs a lot about these sort of small towns in the South. But David James Poisson, he in his book, he writes a lot about these small towns in the South, but they're more like um, Florida and and Louisiana. Um, but you know, the, the big boxization, big boxerization, the Walmartization of small town America is a real thing. You know, the, the, it, yeah. it, that's the commerce. Um, and so if you happen to drive through the South or you drive through, you know, any parts of rural America, you know, you're getting close to town when at the edge of town, you see the giant Klieg lights and the huge, you know, Walmart store. And that's what um, I wonder. I mean, doesn't but, that homogenize culture in a way that like, I mean, part of the joy of reading this book is getting a glimpse into those those lives that are for most of america kind of unimaginable you know like oh what is it like in west virginia coal mine town you know like when you have to go on strike but you know that that means you know certain people are not going to follow you or you know whatever the conflicts are in this book part of it is part of the fun is going like wow of course i've you know there's an industry that exists that i profited from as a consumer but but yeah, nowadays I just feel like it would just be reduced to people that work at Walmart or not. Like there aren't these, you know, industries or these 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 company towns like there used to be that that figure in this in a book like this. Um, and everyone has a cell phone and internet access, so we all right. we're all sort of becoming of the same culture. Like we all have the same cultural references and touchstones, and we're not engaging with the natural landscape that much. Yeah, but just to play devil's advocate for a second, um, I mean, I agree with you, Walmart is very depressing. But um, uh, sharing one culture means we're starting to de-romanticize the idea of poverty. I mean, the poverty that's presented here and even in Winter's Bone does have an almost fairy tale magical aspect to it that takes us very far away from the day-to-day experience of living hand-to-mouth, whereas... You know, I can imagine what it would be like to only eat McDonald's, and that's my personal hell. That's just awful. I mean, and of course, there's many worse things that can happen, but the fact that we're sharing one culture does also give us the opportunity for more empathy and more active change rather than this piece seeming like this piece, these works, seeming like they're from a time that is so far away that we don't know how to engage with them. And I... And I think the the one story that really takes place in a town, which is A Room Forever, um, which is my favorite story, actually, in this book. Me it, too. That's it, so funny that you said that. I was almost going to say that's my favorite story. Um, and it's Why a, is that? It's an intensely fucked up story. Um, yeah. But it takes place in town, and in town is just as dirty and just as and more awful than being in the small town America. So the basic story of A uh, Room Forever is there's a guy who's about to ship out um, on the Del Mar, um, which is a boat. Uh, and he's it's New Year's and it's his last day in town before he ships out. And he goes and he picks up a hooker who is a 14-year-old girl. Um, he has sex with her after having a brief conversation with her, which uh, she finds unsatisfying. Um, then he goes to a bar. He sees the girl in the bar he then walks outside and the girl has gone outside and slit her wrists. Um, it's, I mean, I've, I've shortened the story incredibly, but that's the basic premise of it. And it is just a really, it, it's a, it, for me, the, the reason why it's my favorite is that it pulls absolutely no punches. The hooker does not have a heart of gold. She does not want to be saved. Um, that scene where he walks outside and he finds her there with her wrist cut 
he doesn't try to save her he comes inside the bar and tells the bartender hey there's a girl out back who slit her wrists and then he keeps walking um it's it's just absolutely brutal brutal um Totally I think what I loved about that story so much was 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 the way that he, he he when he first sees the girl, he talks about her with such sympathy and understanding. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, she's fourteen or fifteen. She had to have run away from home. She's not really ready for the life of being right, a prostitute. Right. And then proceeds to completely assist in her degradation and like he is so delusional. I just mm-hmm. couldn't believe how how self-deluding this this guy was and i thought that like going back to you know what we first talked about like that shows a sensitivity to women just that that you would write a story about how a guy could be so self-delusional shows that pancake was obviously thinking about like women in these ways you know Mm -hmm. he just wasn't writing from their perspective yet but he i mean she is a really interesting character and and that story just it, oh you're just so disturbed by the narrator you're mm-hmm. so like with him and then you're like whoa i don't know where this guy's coming from and then it's like oh i loved it i was chilling yeah it draws you in and pushes you right back out i mean that's what's great about these stories you know they're playing with empathy and your sympathy he has a, a great paragraph he's um he's in the bar and he says i look around all these people have come down from their flops because there are no parties for them to go to They are strangers who play a little pool or pinball, drink a little booze. All year they grit their teeth. They pump gas and wait tables and screw chippies and bait queers, and they don't like any of it, but they know they are lucky to get it. Ooh, man. It's it's an amazing paragraph. Oh, so good. And and it's powerfully sad and powerfully weird, and, you know... he does at least he tries to redeem the character a little bit. He he tells the girl that she could stay in his room for the next month while he's gone, and she says, "Shut the fuck up and pay me" or something like that. Um, yeah, yeah, well, that's yeah. part of what's so great about it is that you almost get the feeling like he is kind of falling for her. Like you know, he's mm-hmm. so desperate for human connection that he he might try and you know, but of course it'll never happen because they're both so right. fucked up. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> if you if you dream that you're in a bar filled with chippies, just pinch yourself. Yeah. You're not. You're not in a bar. <laughs> yeah, it's going to give me nightmares. Uh, you know who I was reminded of? Um, have either of you read Chris Offutt? Yes. Very good writer. Yeah. yeah. Chris Offutt is a really great contemporary writer who does a lot of rural southern stuff. Um, but I think most of his stuff is kind of period if I'm remembering mm-hmm. correctly. But he has a collection called Kentucky Straight... And then he has another collection, which I'm, I'm blanking on the name of, but he's a short story writer. I don't know if he's written novels. I've only read his short stories. Well, the thing about Chris Offutt, we Chris Offutt stopped writing short stories and started writing uh, TV shows. He wrote the oh, first two seasons of True Blood. Um, and then I, oh. he also wrote... Well, that's um, unfortunate. Well, the first two seasons of True Blood were good. Um, no, they weren't. I enjoyed them. Keep going. And then he, <laughs> he had another show that he was doing. I don't know if it ended up getting picked up. It was about a family in Nashville, um, a musical family in Nashville. That sounds awesome. Oh, that's so cool. I have to. I don't yeah, I saw the um, I saw the pilot of it, I think. At any rate. But he, yeah, he's been working in TV for a while um, for the last some 10 of years. his short stories are remarkable. And uh, like the Kentucky story, I think they all take place in Kentucky, which is why it's called Kentucky Straight, mm-hmm. the name of the collection. But 
you know, he just has these really weird characters. Like he has, you know, people that live off of the land in the woods, hermits and um, just, but similar to this in a lot of ways, um, a little less depressing, I think ultimately, um, but really cool uh, Southern stories. And uh, if anybody is into this, they should definitely check that out. Uh, let's see. He grew up in a small former mining community located in the Appalachian Mountains. So a, a good comparison to, um, to Breeze Pancake. Uh, the memoir is called No Heroes, A Memoir of Coming Home, and came out um, in 2002. It looks like he's also been writing for the TV show Weeds um, recently. Well, Lord knows short stories aren't going to do it. <laughs> yeah, you know, and I'm sure Breeze Pancake's making more from his short stories now than he ever Aww. did. And I, I should note, Breeze Pancake, and I didn't know this until this past week, I was talking about him on my Facebook page. Um, wondering if anyone were still reading him, and apparently he has a niece named Anne Pancake, who is a short story writer and a novelist, and teaches at an MFA program with our common friend Dinah Lenny. Um, and so she writes about the same area in West Virginia, apparently. So I've ordered her book, um, Anne Pancake's book. It's a collection of stories, so I'll uh, I'll report back if uh, if it's good. If it's not good, I won't say a word, and you guys will never know the difference. <laughs> I'm curious. That's interesting. But I'm sure it will be. So um, so this was uh, the stories of Brees DJ Pancake. It's a wonderful story collection by uh, a writer who died too soon. No, we should we should mention briefly the weird case of his suicide. So um, he was found in a neighbor's house. They came home from grocery shopping, and they found him sitting there. And he told the neighbor, oh, sometimes I get drunk and wander around. She ran out screaming. He ran back to his house. Um, his mother, I think it was, came in and told him that the police wanted to come talk to him. They're on their way. He went outside, took a shotgun, and blew his head off. Um, so it's a uh, it's really it's a sad. Well, mostly terrible because it, story. It sounds yeah. so much like one of his characters. Yeah, like it, it really makes does. Me, it makes me think that he had a, a, an empathy with his own characters that that went really deep in a way that you know. Oh, it's depressing because I would hate to feel like these characters. Yeah, it, it's awfully depressing, um, but well worth the read. And for those of you who are creative writing students out there that are listening, if you're writing short stories, uh, you don't know it, but every writer you've read in the last 20 years probably um, was influenced in some way by these stories. And they're absolutely worth uh, worth yeah, the read. Really- so it's the stories of Brees, DJ, Pancake, available in fine bookstores everywhere. And that's it for this episode of Literary Disco. Join us in two weeks when we read Twice Upon a Time by Hari Kunzru, an essay that appears in The Atavist. Literary Disco is edited and produced and saved each week by Tucker Ives. Follow us on Twitter at Literary Disco. Like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash literary disco. And thank you for listening. <laughs>